Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have some awesome news, starting with the end of the Qualcomm Broadcom Intel ah, saga. We've got IoT devices setting new legal precedents. We've got a new edge computing platform. Google Assistant routines are now live. And we have a smorgasbord of new devices, including a sprinkler, a security camera, a new Raspberry Pi, and a light switch that talks to Madam A. We've got some funny stories from Kevin and a creepy conclusion to this segment of the podcast. But then we lighten it up with our guest, Toby Mina from Bayer, who's going to be talking about IoT and agriculture, plus LiDAR and how it relates to insect wings. And we'll have a message from our sponsor, Samsung Arctic, on how it secures the Internet of Things. So let's kick this off with a message from another one of our sponsors, IoT World. You're invited to IoT World, the premier event for IoT business and technology. It's May 14th through 17th at the Santa Clara Convention Center in Silicon Valley. It's celebrating its fifth anniversary, and the show welcomes over 12,000 IoT professionals 450 speakers, and 300 exhibitors and startups. This year, it's all about putting IoT into action, how to build a winning strategy, implement that strategy effectively, and drive results. To learn more and register to attend, visit iotworldevent.com. Okay, Kevin. Man, I should warn everyone, I have a cold, so Lord only knows what's going to happen to my voice this show, but bear with us. If it gets too bad, I'll just make Kevin do the rest, all on his own. Oh, goody. So, let's kick it off with Qualcomm and Broadcom. The deal is dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's done. The deal is done, but not in the way people expected it to be. So Kevin and I have actually been going back and forth before we record the show. I'm like, should we talk about it this week? Uh, no, no, it's still too iffy. <laughs> so we held off. We talked about it when it first was announced back in November of last year, because this was a huge consolidation of chip makers, especially related to the Internet of Things. Broadcom makes the chip in the Raspberry Pi. It makes a ton of Wi-Fi chips. It's huge. Yes, they also have networking capabilities as well, but for our purposes... Broadcom, IoT, big deal. Qualcomm, however, has been getting into the IoT and most of its chips because they were focused on mobile for so long and and did so well there. A lot of its chips have just been popped into IoT devices. Now they're actually working really hard to make things like an embedded module of Snapdragon, the Snapdragon 820 that we talked about, I think, a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. So this deal would have consolidated a significant amount. So... I'm actually glad it didn't happen because Broadcom is a private equity play. They are just mushing together lots and lots of chip companies. And frankly, I don't think that they would have the focus on innovation that Qualcomm has had forever. Broadcom used to have a big focus on integration, but that has subsequently kind of died. Yeah, most of their, I don't want to say growth, but I'll use it for lack of a better word, has come from acquisitions and just getting into different markets as opposed to developing existing markets such as IoT and so on. It, it just, I agree with that. I, I think Qualcomm's a little more innovative, 
their mobile chips, I think, prove that, but those are too powerful to use too much battery for a lot of IoT-type devices and sensors, so they need to re-innovate in that area, which they're doing. And the whole reason we didn't even say why the deal is off is because the U.S. president has said it would raise security concerns to have a Chinese company with that type of power in this particular segment. Yes, which is ironic because prior to the deal being announced back in November, I believe it was the end of October that President Trump actually met with, he appeared on the podium next to Broadcom CEO Hak Tan and talked about jobs growth from Broadcom mm -hmm. in the U.S. So I'm sure... Right, because this deal, according to Broadcom, this deal would have brought more jobs in because, and this is happening anyway, Broadcom is going to re-establish its headquarters in the U.S., which it had done about three, two or three years ago. It moved it overseas. Yes. So, in meanwhile, we should just introduce this. Meanwhile, Qualcomm is still trying to buy an XP. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. which is a, a major semiconductor company to get more, it'd be more automotive capabilities and that microcontroller capabilities that Qualcomm is currently not not doing so hot in or doesn't they're, have. They're, yeah, their NXP is big in NFC chips as well, which are used, uh, most mobile devices use NXP for Compon NFC. Yes, component yes. type stuff. Right. And if that weren't crazy enough, <laughs> Intel. Of course, you got to talk about Intel. <laughs> Intel has decided that eh, if the Broadcom deal were to start looking serious, Intel might come in with its own buyout offer for Qualcomm, which mm. then begs the question of now that this is done, what happens with Intel? Is it content to sit there and say, you know what, we're good? You know, we don't need any mobile chips because we're, we're huh. not doing that. I don't even know. Because we had those with Xscale and we sold them off right before mobile phones came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this deal, the Broadcom Qualcomm deal, the Com deal, not happening. The NXP deal, who knows? Intel, also who knows? So we'll leave it at that. And yeah, <laughs> there we go. Now we don't have to talk about it anymore, at least. Or debate over, should we talk about it? Yes. No more debate. Okay. No. So moving right along to, oh, this is a really fun story, you guys, except it's a scary story. I shouldn't, I shouldn't set you up like that and then make you worry. It's so, no scarier than anything we've talked about before. It's true. So, yeah. all right. I was reading in ABA Journal, which is a business law publication. The panel occurred last week, and it was basically, it was called... Madam A, is this IoT evidence admissible? Except they didn't use Madam A. In the spirit of accuracy, I have to tell you that. So yes. basically, these guys talked about law cases where Internet of Things devices, such as a Fitbit, Madam A, and other things, other connected devices were used to... Personal, personal devices. Personal devices. And, oh, for example, <laughs> the insurance device in someone's car. It was mm. used in a murder trial. And this is a murder trial in Wisconsin. The victim was a woman named Nicole Vanderheiden, and her boyfriend was a suspect. But they looked at his Fitbit data, and they decided that he didn't do it. However, they found this other guy who apparently was suspicious, and then they looked at data from his Google dashboard, and it placed him at relevant locations around her death. And they also looked at his search history, which is not new. And... The woman who was murdered actually had Snapshot, which is a connected car device from Progressive Insurance, and they used that to place her whereabouts prior to the murder. 
So the attorneys noted that this was not direct evidence. This was corroborative. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still a little scary. So yeah, it is scary. And, and we'll talk a little bit later about some corroborative evidence that I gathered for uh, an issue at my house. But you know, we've talked about how these types of devices, that data goes into the cloud. The companies, you know, they have their privacy policies, but they're going to comply with local laws and, and subpoenas and so on and so forth. And I don't think it's going to stop people from wearing smartwatches, Fitbits, talking to their echoes and so on. But we need to be aware. We as, a, as consumers need to be aware that even if you're not, quote unquote, giving up your privacy with these devices, it still can be used against you. Yes. And he suggested that lawyers actually ask consumers what IoT devices they have when talking to them so they can understand the possibility of evidence, basically, what could yep. come out against you. And they also said that this might lead to a new class of expert witnesses, where people can be disputing, like, how accurate is the Fitbit data? I don't know, which that could be fun as well. So mm. that's as someone I don't plan on committing a murder anytime soon, but <laughs> or ever or ever. Let's be clear. <laughs> no, who knows? No. But it, it is a little disconcerting because as a journalist, I'm not doing anything controversial now. But what if I decided to get into something controversial? I think my IoT devices might be the first things out the window in that case. Mm -hmm. So keep this in mind, privacy fans. We've got a new type of edge computing out there. Cloudflare, which is a security company, they help protect against DDoS attacks. That was their original incarnation. Now, because they have such a massive network of edge, they call it edge devices, edge servers. They're really more like edge in the sense of a CDN being an edge. They're not at the edge of, you know, like in on-premise yeah, or right. little tiny nodes and sensors, but they're actually offering computing at their edge, which is pretty compelling. It'll be deployed at their edge. It's called cloud workers. And I bring this up mostly because A, it's a cool offering, but it really drives home the point that not everything is going to happen in the cloud when it comes to the Internet of Things. It can't. We talk about this a lot, but it's worth bringing up one more time. And this is also very similar to what the telcos are trying to offer with their edge computing efforts, which is at the edge of the telco network. So you could kind of look at those as parallels. And, you know, I would. This is kind of interesting to me if I were a true developer. I'm, I'm a newbie developer, but I mean, you, you mentioned CDNs just to further explain the example. Like if you're watching Netflix, you're not watching it from Netflix's main servers. They've got servers all over the world that have the content. So you're going to the closest server. What Cloudflare is doing is they're putting JavaScript processing at the edge, kind of like Netflix does with its content. So if I'm de developing an IoT device, I can get to the closest Cloudflare server to process things, you know, process sensor information and return a result or make an action happen. And they claim, you know, that the latency is like practically not zero, but pretty darn close. It's much quicker. So you don't have the processing on the device. You don't have the processing at a, a centralized cloud storage place, but it's all over the place. And it's kind of interesting from a developer standpoint. I agree. It does look to be some smaller developers are complaining about the pricing because there's a $5 really? minimum that covers your first 10 million requests and it's per domain. So I can see. 
I mean, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a massive user base and and devices that are doing something all the time with data, I get that. But it was it. I thought it was actually pretty cheap. I think some develop if you have multiple domains, this could get pricey fast. Yeah. So I think that that's the issue. However, there it is. It's awesome. Or I should it could say be. <laughs> it could be awesome. It's interesting. Let's move to the home for a little bit because Google Assistant routines are now live. They are live in the US and you may not see them yet. I actually do not. I have an old version of routines in my Google Assistant app. But from what I've seen, and if you don't have it yet, you can go to a Google support page that we are linking to in the show notes. I'm a little disappointed because it takes a lot of the customization and flexibility out of it. The routines are really preset six different options, such as good morning, good night, and so on and so forth. When you configure these in your app, you have a, a set of checkboxes that you can choose from. So you, it's not like you can customize completely to your needs. I don't know. I haven't used it yet because I don't have it yet, but I'm, I'm a little disappointed by that. But you raised a good point, Stacey, just before the show. There might be a good reason for this. I think it's because they don't want to confuse people. I mean, one of the big complaints we've always had about kind of programming your smart home is, oh my God, it feels like programming your smart home. And checking off boxes is far easier than saying, okay, when this happens, let what should my good night routine be? If someone suggests things for you, it's a lot easier. True. Very true. Now, I don't have it yet either. And I will say, if you want to do, my suggestion to Kevin was, if you want to do something super custom, go with shortcuts, which is the Google option where you you say what you want to say, and then you just tell it what you want it to do. The downside there is I have shortcuts that have never run and will never run because they don't work. But Google doesn't mm-hmm. actually tell you what doesn't work about them. Mm-hmm. So fixing them is a real pain in the butt. Yeah, well, and hopefully they'll develop this further, expand it. You know, Google I.O. is coming up in May. I really do expect to see a lot of new information and features and functionalities on the IoT side from Google. I'm going to hope so, because and maybe, maybe we'll get more on Google things. <gasps> so exciting. All right. Let's do some quick news bits. Fitness app Strava has decided that maybe it shouldn't show quite so much data. You guys might remember, it was a couple months ago, that Strava did its heat map and suddenly everyone realized that military bases and other clandestine operations were kind of obvious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could see areas where there weren't a lot of Strava users and you could in third world countries and the Middle East and suddenly you could see, oh, here's a couple Strava users growing right here. And that was no good. So now they have a new version of the heat map. And it bars access to street-level details to anyone except registered Strava users. Right. And if you set your, you can do this in the app, if you set your mapping to private, what they'll do is they're going to wipe those private, the private data every 30 days. So there won't be a long-term history of this type of information. Yes. And roads and trails with little activity will not show up on the revised map until several different users upload workouts in that area. So that feels pretty good. And... It's a step. It's a step. We'll see. We'll see what happens. And, you know, in the meantime, I think the military kind of came to a, a wake up call and was like, oh, maybe we should check what our people are using and understand their mm-hmm. privacy policies. That would be a shame and very ironic if we got better privacy thanks to the military for our IoT devices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Other news. 
Samsung smart things. Woof. They had an outage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was only in North America. So this was not worldwide. But it was earlier this week around 2 p.m. Eastern time. And it lasted. It depends on who you ask. And, and obviously different users in different areas might have experienced the issue. And while others did not as it was being fixed. But to me, it looks like it lasted about 18-ish hours. And I mean, it, this happens. I get it. There are outages for every cloud-based service known to man. People were complaining about Samsung's transparency. The other issue this raises is, you know, with everything being done, not everything, but a lot of the things being done in the cloud for IoT, that's a choke point. That's a problem. And SmartThings does have some local things that can run on its hub, as does Wink. Um, But it really raises the question to me of, you know, do we need hubs and why? I think we do. And I made a case for Google to actually make its own hub earlier in the week. And I got some interesting responses from that. Some people said hubs are just hacks because, you know, people aren't using standards. But I don't I don't agree with that. Hubs will help bridge different radio protocols, for example, that are using standards. Uh, Hubs also have the processing power and storage to actually store your automations and things like that. And somebody, when I said that, somebody said, well, you should just use the cloud for that. And I said, yeah, just ask Samsung this week. See how well that works. So I think we still need hubs. I don't know what you think, Stacey, but I think this is a good example of why. I think it's ironic that you, of all people, who hate hubs and bridges. I do. Want more hubs and bridges. But no, I only want one. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I don't want multiple hubs. I'm happy with one. I've got a wink hub. I'm happy with having one. One is fine as long as it works with all my devices. But to get rid of it completely, there are ways to do that, but it's a challenge. And, you know, my, in the conversations I have with people, and this was all on Twitter and Google Plus, I said, well, so you want every device to be able to talk to every device. How does one device know what devices I have in the house? Does every developer of a, or a hardware maker have to know about all these other devices that are on the market? Because once I add one, it has to talk to that one. So that's a challenge. Uh, I, I think a hub can do the work of that. I agree. I think the challenge we've come up with is we never built standards for the Internet of Things in Mm -hmm. Smart Home. We have yet to do it. Everyone instead decided to build their own standard. And so what we've got are these little silos of information and works with programs. And we will be there for probably all of time is my feeling. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just pessimistic. So we will need a hub given the way the world has evolved. Didn't have to evolve that way, but it did. So here we are. All right. Should we talk about all the new toys out on the market? Yeah, let's do that. I'll take the first one because it got me excited. There's a new Raspberry Pi, the Raspberry Pi 3 Model B+. It is on sale for $35, which is the same price as the old Raspberry Pi 3B. What's new here is they've added dual band wireless. So you have 802.11ac, both in 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. You've got Bluetooth 4.2. You've got gigabit Ethernet now. And also, if you add on a module, I don't know what the price is going to be, you will get power over Ethernet support which I want to ask you about in a second. What else do they have? I think those are the main things. So actually, I'll just ask you right now. Power over Ethernet. Why should people be excited over that with this Raspberry Pi? This feels like a nod to the pro community. Power over Ethernet is something that pro installers of consumer electronics usually ask for because it's more reliable. You know, you can 
get your doorbell cam. It's faster. Um, so cameras, doorbell cams, those are kind of the things that end up going over POE, also alarm type systems. So I would think that if you were interested in building something custom that has that kind of reliability, this would be an awesome thing for you. So I think it's actually a really interesting option for people who are interested in the smart home. Mm-hmm. I agree. So that is the new Pi, which, by the way, we are recording this on Wednesday, which is Pi Day. Yes, Yay! it is. Happy Pi Day. Happy Pi Day. Uh, so next item is actually one of our listeners brought this to my attention. It is the Abode Iota. And this is a, I'm just going to call it a canary-like device that is built mm-hmm. for the Abode system. So Abode is a security system. I've had several people talk to me about this and they love their abode systems. It's about a $300 initial install. It's a gateway and sensors and all this other kind of stuff. It's it's super easy to use. What they've done now is they've created a camera device with sensors that you just plug in and it acts as a gateway. You can use it with your existing abode stuff, but I think this is actually to get to the the renter market, the lay person who's like, yeah, I want security, but I don't want like, you know, something fancy or involved. So this is like, hey, here's your camera, plunk it down. If you want to get fancier, you can start buying some sensors. It works with Zigbee, Z-Wave, and I'm actually kind of excited. It's it's $329, which is kind of pricey. Works with HomeKit too. And it works with HomeKit. It's not out yet. It will ship sometime, they say the first quarter of 2018. No, which, which is, is now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that may or may not happen. So Yeah, I just thought this was a really interesting device. I may actually try to pick one up to play with it because I had wanted to try out the original Abode Security based on all the positive feedback that I had gotten about it, but I never did because security systems are not something I get too excited about. I'm probably more in the chunk it down and forget about it kind of audience. Some folks might be excited about this as opposed to the Canary because this has a micro SD card slot as well. So presumably not everything has to go up to the cloud or could be at least retrieved and stored locally. So that may be of interest to folks. Yes. All right. There's also a brand new light switch out, the Egobee Switch Plus. It has a motion sensor and Madam A. You guys are probably familiar with Ecobee because, holy cow... It makes a thermostat, including one with Madam A. Now it's just moving into light switches, and I have a theory as to why. Would you like why? to hear it, Kevin? I would I would love to hear it. Okay. So light switches are ubiquitous in your room. If you want to get good presence detection, having a light switch with a motion sensor and yeah, sure, Madam A, great, is a great way to go about it because again, light switches, every room, they have power. They are in a compact form factor. So if you really hate the idea of, you know, having those little hockey pucks everywhere, you don't have to. It could just be like hidden. I am getting one to review. So I'll let you know things like, hey, does it really work with something in your wall and talking to it and getting a response? The answer may surprise us. Now, so I thought this was interesting. Ecobee did just recently get $61 million in funding, including more from the Madam A fund. So this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, interesting. Although Madam A is built in, as one would expect, since they built it into their their last thermostat, just like the Ecobees, recent Ecobees, it worked with HomeKit, also works with Google Assistant, SmartThings, and IFT. So it's 
don't feel like it's an Amazon only kind of thing. You could use this if you're not using Echoes, for example. Yes. Now it is $99, which is a lot to pay for a light switch. Well, you're getting a light switch, you're getting a motion sensor that can automatically activate that light. And you're also getting Madam A, if that's important. You could have that in every room. And this, in fact, when I saw this, it reminded me again to harp on this. When is NVIDIA coming out with their little Google Assistant microphone and speakers that you're just supposed to plug in every room of your house? That was two CESs ago, so 14 months ago, and nothing. Because that's what this does. It's adding the speaker and the microphone to every room. Maybe they're busy (laughs) making chips for cryptocurrency mining. I don't know. Well, that's probably more profitable, although the market's down. But still, I'm very upset that there's been no news on that. But so this appeals to me for the same reasons, actually. And I'm not a light switch guy. I'm I'm all bulbs. But I am interested in this. Oh, well, maybe I should send it to you. (laughs) I should also mention that it does detect temperature. And humidity, I believe. And humidity. There are some constraints to this. One, it will not work on the three-way switches, which means where you have multiple switches that control one light. One light. Mm -hmm. They also need a neutral wire like every other device. (laughs) Yeah. And it works with LED and CFL lights. It also, CFL actually is interesting because not a lot work with that. And then it works with incandescent lights. So- Mm. There you go. It doesn't, I'm looking to see if it's a dimmer. Because it works with CFLs, I wonder. Yeah, I don't see that it's, it doesn't say that it's a dimmer. I just see on off. So it may Mm -hmm. not be a dimmer. And if that's the case, that may or may not make you happy. (laughs) Right. And we have one more new thing out this week. It is the Ratio third generation sprinkler. And Ratio is a smart sprinkler company. You actually install this at your where your sprinkler brains live, and it controls things, and you can control stuff from your phone. They had talked about adding soil moisture sensors. That process is still incredibly complicated, so I, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. But now they have the Ratio 3 smart sprinkler controller and Ratio 3 wireless flow meter. And these will sell for two forty nine. Ooh, the irrigation of things is not cheap. No. Well, the actually, I think the second generation was about that much. My father-in-law actually installed one and has it, and he loves it. He thinks it's just fantastic. And hmm. he is not... He is not perhaps the most sophisticated smart home user. We did tie it to an IFT integration for weather, but that was about it. And he was just kind of, I don't think he's excited about it. I think I made him do that. <laughs> um, so now the installation is supposedly easier. There's five gigahertz wireless compatibility and a new long range radio to connect with the first ever residential wireless flow meter. So basically, this tells you how much water is being used, and it will detect when leaks happen, and it shuts down your water supply. This is really important because sprinkler leaks happen all the darn time. And you don't know about it. And yeah, you're just like, unless you get a swampy patch on your ground, you're like, I don't know. So this is really important. This fits within Ratio's whole, we want to save the earth by using less water effort. And I'll say, I mean... I helped him install it. The second generation, it was easy. The biggest challenge actually for us was getting Wi-Fi to the garage. And once that was taken care of, we were all good. So it is now available for pre-order. 
And like I said, it was two forty nine. So, or sorry, two forty nine ninety nine. Okay. So that is all the new toys out this week. Well, it may not be all of them, but those are the ones we saw and got excited about. Yeah. Well, one of my old toys actually helped me out big time this week. Tell me more, Kevin. So I won't get into all the details, but essentially we woke up late last week. I guess it was Friday. And my wife went to her car, which is parked on the street in our townhouse complex, and saw a big dent and scrape in her vehicle and lots of parts all over the ground, not from our car, but obviously from another car. And nobody left a note or anything, but somebody obviously hit the car. So I went back and scoured all of my Nest Cam footage because I have an indoor Nest Cam pointing outdoors since we're not allowed to have outdoor cameras. And sure enough, about 6, 11 p.m. the night before, we saw a neighbor pull out of their driveway across the street and back into our car. So I've got the evidence i uh, worked with the local authorities and talked to the neighbor who isn't really sure that she hit the, our car. Uh, she thinks somebody hit her car, but sorry, whatever, I, no big deal. She doesn't have video and I do. So yeah, we're using that Nest video footage with the police and also our insurance agency. So big help right there. Well, there you go. And since yeah. that was a lot of damage, hopefully, mm. hopefully your Nest purchase has now been worth it. If the claim is covered by their insurance company, it will be all worth it. And then some. Excellent. Okay. And Kevin, <laughs> Kevin <laughs> took a trip on the dark side. We were talking about it this morning about this, the story. I'm sure many of you saw it. It was MIT Technology Review wrote about a, I believe it's a Y Combinator startup that it is. lets you upload your yourself, but it is a hundred percent fatal. And <laughs> this is freaky deaky. I was like, Kevin, what the heck does this have to do with the internet of things other than well, like, ah! you're right. Other than ah, it's um, just to clarify, the startup is preserving brains for the moment. That's what they're going to do with the hopes of actually being able to upload all of all of you in the future. And the reason they this is fatal is because they have to keep your brain preserved and alive, so to speak. So you've kind of pretty much got to be dead. That's one whole freaky bit about it. But normally I wouldn't have even brought this up. But you said something pretty profound once before on the show, well, many times, but in particular, you had said once your data is uploaded to the cloud or a company, et cetera, you don't control what they do with it. And I thought about that as it applies to this. And if they, this company actually does succeed, and I'm not saying they will, but what if they did? My entire brain data would be in their hands. What would be done with it? I've got no control over it because I'm already dead, and that's really scary. Yep. All right. So now none of us are going to sleep tonight. And <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I told you we'd end the show on a creepy note. I lied to you because we're actually going to end the note on one of our IOT listener hotlines. But instead of a hotline this week, nobody called us. You guys, 512-623-7424, overload us with your questions. However, we do get lots of emailed questions, so we took one of those. The IoT Podcast Listener Hotline is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. Schlage smart locks work with most smart home and security systems, so you can get the most out of your lock, whether you're an Apple HomeKit user or love Amazon's Echo. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. And this week's email, not hotline call, in an email titled, Please Help a Censor Rookie, Nate Davis asks, 
What are the best books to read or other forms of information I can learn from for someone who is new to the world of IoT sensors? One starter book would be great, but also a few follow-up resources that will take me from learning the basics, like an introductory book, to having a good understanding would be amazing. Hmm. Oh, Nate. Depends on what you want to do, I think. And I say that because if you, the sensors that you can purchase today that work with IoT hubs and such are pretty easy to use, pretty easy to install, and so on and so forth. However, if you want to learn how these things work and make them work yourself, I would do one of two things. I know you've got some recommendations, Stacy, but I would get an Arduino kit and some sensors, very simple sensors, could even be buttons, and walk through some of the step-by-step instructions on how to make them work, literally. Make Magazine is a great resource, and they actually have a book. It's a little dated, but they have a book from 2011 called Getting Started with the Internet of Things, and they will walk you through either using a Pi or an Arduino board and some sensors to literally make events, trigger events, and make things happen. So that's that's one thing I would look at. Do you have any other thoughts? So depending on how how advanced you want to be. Just to get a feel for this, if you have sensors, I always encourage, and this is actually what I do with my own daughter, is I just take sensors and light bulbs and I hook them up together via IFT or via the Smart Things Hub. IFT is beneficial because it's it doesn't cost money. We just show what happens when you trigger things, right? So that's one option. The other option is if you want to get a little fancier, and this actually works for kids, and I'm not trying to insult you, Nate, but I actually use it this way too, is little bits. Mm. If you buy a little bits kit, you get a lot of sensors. So if the idea of an Arduino scares you, and it shouldn't, but it might, some people do get scared with Arduinos, start with a little bits kit and you can do, I mean, you can like build thermostats with those things. Yeah. They're very capable devices or sets of devices. Absolutely. And the other resource I would offer to you is Adafruit's website. So it's A-D-A-F-R-U-I-T.com. And they have, if you go into their learn section, you will see so many products. And they're really what the lessons that they have explain what's happening. They explain how to do it. And you can buy like the kit to get started. So this is a great way to just start playing with hardware if that's what's interesting. So sensors is a huge category. So Kevin and I were like, I don't know if he wants like, you know, Arduino level stuff or if he's just like, hey, I want to play with my light bulbs and motion sensors. So this should get you started. I wish I wish there were like a book that was really compelling, but I so far haven't really found one. So I would say start with those kind of, those are good resources to start with. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay, and now we shall... Hear a message from our sponsor and then go to our guest. This week's guest is Toby Mina from Bayer AG. And we're talking about agriculture and the Internet of Things. And he's got some great startups that he talks about. He talks about building a new business model for IoT. And he talks about using LiDAR to track insects. So you're going to want to stay tuned because it's it's pretty cool. Hey everyone, we're taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Samsung Arctic. And I have John Jeffries, head of IoT marketing for Samsung Arctic, here to talk to us about how they handle security. Remind us of what Samsung Arctic does to focus on security. 
Samsung Arctic provides comprehensive security from the edge to the cloud. Our modules have numerous security and safety features built into them, and they are also tied to the SmartThings cloud through mutual authentication. Last week, we talked about S-modules, and this week, you and I spoke about creating a trust mark for IoT devices. Where does that idea come from? That idea comes from both the work that Underwriters Lab is doing and what I saw at CES. I noticed at CES this year, many of the IoT devices were sporting works with Alexa or works with Google Assistant on their boxes. I think that consumers would benefit by looking at the boxes if the devices that they're buying were, in fact, secure. And one of the things you talked about was securing over-the-air updates. Why is this important? Well, Stacey, this is personally important to me because the very first IoT devices I bought, I've thrown away because they were not upgradable. Okay. And with over-the-air updates, what do you need to do to make sure that they're secure? Stacey, over-the-air updates are more complicated than they sound. Software package itself needs to be created, signed, and protected by the manufacturer. Then it needs to be sent and received in a secure manner. And once it's finally delivered to the device, the device itself needs to verify that it was signed by an authentic creator of the software that manufactured that device. Let's say an OTA update isn't secure. What are the risks that that can entail? Well, there's several points of risk, Stacy. Even when the de- software package is in motion, if the implementation of SSL or TLS doesn't include forward privacy, i.e. is less than 1.2, it's susceptible to eavesdropping it by man-in-the-middle attack. So in addition to the concerns about authenticity and integrity of the software package, there's also a risk of a downgrade attack, where an older authenticated software update can be rolled back, enabling vulnerable versions of Wi-Fi or Bluetooth protocols that were officially signed yet are still vulnerable. So at a fundamental level, manufacturers should ensure the authenticity and integrity of an update. If there's no way to verify that, there's no way of verifying that the software you received and just upgraded your new IoT device to is, in fact, genuine and created by the manufacturer. That all sounds great and a little scary. So if you want to learn more about what Samsung Arctic's doing on the security front, visit www.stacyonioT.com slash Samsung Arctic. That's A-R-T-I-K. That's www.stacyonioT.com slash Samsung Arctic. A-R-T-I-K. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and I have with me Toby Minna from Bayer. Not the drug company. Well, it is also the drug company, but... This is the Agricultural Division, and we're talking about bringing IoT to farmers, big and small. Hi, Toby. Hi, Stacy. I'm so glad you could join me today. So let's just get this started and talk to me about Bayer's journey to the Internet of Things in agriculture. Thank you, Stacey. Large farmers are facing a lot of challenges nowadays, um, resistance, a lot of new insects and, and diseases. And we felt that there needs to be more efficient ways than farmers sitting for days in their car and visiting every field. So our ambition is to let a farmer perfectly know where which weed is growing, where which disease is spreading and which insects are flying on his field without traveling miles and miles to everything. We've had a couple guests on the show who are in the agricultural space, and they spend a lot of time talking about increasing the efficiency of farms and helping make workers more productive. And from your point of view, what needs to take place for that to happen? 
farming operations, especially when they when the concrete things happening on the field are unbelievably complex. I must have I've been running a farm with a little short of a million acres in Ukraine, and we had tremendous problems really bringing all the complexity of good agronomic decisions to the field. So it is very much around lifting good decisions and making them available across fields and implementing those good decisions. Of course, and increasing labor and machine efficiency, as well as other input efficiency. Okay. And here at, we're at Bosch Connected World. And here you guys are demonstrating something you're working on with Bosch that uses computer vision to identify a weed and then sprays it. It's a little bit different than technology that we've talked about before called Blue River. How are you guys different from them? Weed management overall is the major issue of farmers, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. So we said applying a herbicide, should the herbicide should really end up on those parts of the field where it's really needed and where it's supposed to do its job, so exactly where the weeds are. For us, it is really important that farmers can use their existing equipment with our technology so they can upgrade their existing equipment, that they can go with their existing speed and save inputs at the same time. I can see how John Deere, which bought Blue River, may not want people to, you know, stay with their existing equipment. So I'm like, okay. Now for for you guys, we've talked about some of the things you're doing with startups because you're not just doing weed management, but you're working with a couple other companies. Can you talk about those projects? Sure. We are, for example, working, working with Fana Photonics. They are, together with Bayer, we're developing a technology to count and to determine insects with LiDAR technology, even if it's miles and miles away. I think this is really cool stuff and especially helpful for farmers. So they don't need to visit their fields every day, but they really know which insects are there, if they are harmful, and how many are there. My favorite part about this, guys, is how do you identify these insects using LiDAR? When we overall started this journey, we understood that we could use LiDAR technology to measure the wing beat frequency of individual insect groups. That turned out to be more tricky than we expected because depending on what the insects had eaten, their wind beat frequency is slightly changing. So we had to generate an atomic calibration data to and create a library for those wing beat frequencies, but that is done now. I love that there's like an ontology around wing beat frequencies. That's crazy. Okay. So, and then you're working with other companies. Which ones? We're working, for example, with Fundazat, a Dutch startup, especially focused on radar technology from satellites and here we are measuring the soil moisture from space really also helping farmers to come to to and identify the perfect moment to seed their seeds for example and also to understand if fungus for example is spreading or not so i've talked to a lot of companies doing soil moistures in the ground talk to me about why you guys went with space instead Oh, because I believe it's like 10,000 or 20,000 times cheaper than putting soil moisture sensors in the ground. Do you use existing satellites or do they use small sats? They use small sats, so they have a good coverage. And of course, we're combining this data also with other rain data to really understand how moist soil moisture is developing in different layers of the soil. How much does that cost compared to a sensor? What is the cost inferential there? Well, I could share some experience from my farm. We did some experience with soil sensors. We had to dig them in, first of all, then in, in like 30 centimeters, 60 and 90 centimeters. We needed several, for 10 acres, we were digging in 20 sensors. We had permanent problems with connectivity. We had problems when some plowing happened or the crop was growing. So all of this you get away with when you use the data from the satellite. 
I'm imagining, you know, what happens to sprinkler heads when you run over them with a lawnmower. And I'm thinking, oh, just like that. Okay. So these are some of the companies you're working with. What other things are you looking for? What companies that want to work with you on this? Where are the holes? Where are the gaps? We're looking really for the most crazy and unbelievable data sources for agriculture. These could come from existing machines, but they also could come from totally different data sources. So anyone listening to this and has a great idea, please do contact Stacy or myself. I love it. Okay. You guys have made a distinction about the different types of farmers that you go for. One is big industrial guys, the other is smaller farms. Can you talk about those two types of farms for me for a minute? So farms have traditionally over the last hundred years got bigger and bigger because their fixed cost has risen so tremendously and that has spread it across more acres. We believe that with digitalization, this trend will reverse and the age of the small farmer in respect to the big farmer will really, will really start. So our ambition is to bring the 500 million small farmers who are today only producing 20% of the calories of the planet really into the global ag value chain. Then you would expect them to produce how many or what percent of calories? I mean, what is the end goal if everyone's a small farmer? We're not necessarily only looking for calories. We're also looking for much better quality fruit and veggies. We're looking for healthier food for a more balanced diet, especially across Africa and Southeast Asia. So what kind of tools are you building for them? When we spoke with those small farmers in those places, they all said the same. We want to know what is happening on our field now. We're not interested in what is happening three villages further away. So we developed a smartphone app, just helping those just by taking a picture to understand which insect they have in front of them, which weed, which disease, and even if their crop needs some nutrition. All this with their existing smartphone and an app called Savio. In the data that you have, you guys have reams of agricultural data on this, or not even agriculture, just pictures of weeds, and you trained it using your data? We have built these algorithms by ourselves, so... For years, we've been going out, taking pictures of weeds and of insects and of diseases around the planet, then to build those recognition algorithms. One of my biggest things is thinking about how the IoT can actually improve the world, not just ROIs, which is lovely, but how we can actually make things better. And how are you guys kind of trying to think about the bigger picture of us on this planet? We're generating a lot of proprietary data through the Xarvio Scouting app. We have currently a couple of hundred thousand users across hundred countries. We're donating all this proprietary data to a data NGO called Quantified Planet. Quantified makes this data available for open innovation to universities for a better agriculture and for more sustainability in agriculture. I imagine you could also see the new superweed. Well, you know, we had a couple of universities approaching us and said, look, you guys get a couple of 10,000 pictures of fauna and flora every day. Could you please send us those pictures? You absolutely have no idea what you have in front of you. Because through crowdsourcing, this university believe, will I detect also new species which so far were not known to us. Has that happened yet? Not to my knowledge yet, but we are confident that it will happen over the next couple of months. Okay. I've had Roz, actually, from The Yield, an Australian company that is trying to do what I imagine is just incredible. It is an end-to-end understanding of the food system, basically all the way to when I as a consumer would eat it. And I look at that and I'm like, holy cow, that's the internet of things. But I'm also like, is that even realistic? So talk to me about where this could go and how this could connect beyond just the farm. I as a consumer, uh, I want to really be confident that I'm reading the right things for my body. And I also want to be confident that what I'm eating is healthy for me. So whatever kind of information this the supply chain can give here to me and the grower can provide to me is increasing my confidence. 
So I'm absolutely convinced that this data is we're generating here is not only good for the farmer to increase productivity, but also to increase the confidence of the consumer. And how far would Bayer go in this chain? I mean, you guys, it's a large company. So how much do you guys want to do versus work with partners? We're at the very beginning of this journey, Stacey. We are perfectly aware that we want to partner, and we are currently partnering with around about 30 companies, very big like Bosch here, uh, to a lot of smaller startups. And we are eager really also to find new tech partners with whom we can collaborate and make this vision happening. And how long till we see real changes in the way people farm from these sorts of innovations? Uh, You'll see it today. If you're traveling parts of Uganda and you see how small farmers are adopting those digital products and improve their farming practice, this is unbelievable and really awesome. They never had access to high-tech information on how to do things. And now they have the same information on their fingertip as you and me. I would imagine they have more. Okay. How do you think all of this data that you're collecting and the research that you're doing will ultimately change how you guys sell your products? We are perfectly aware that a business model based on selling gallons or kilograms of products is not carrying us indefinitely into the future. Our ambition is to sell crop protection ultimate yield as a service. What is your process as a business for getting there? Because that's clearly a very long-term thing and involves working deeply with your customers. And we don't have any perfect plan, Stacey. We have this grand ambition and we exactly know what we're going to do over the next three or 12 and, and maybe 18 months. But then we are cycling and, and having, a, having a look again. How can a company that wants to also do something like that, move from selling a product to a service, how would you advise them to start the process if they're looking at this going, ah, it's so cool, I want to do it? Well, we're looking at different customer segments and we perfectly understand that some farmers are very satisfied with the system as it is today and they want to carry on. So we are not stopping the old business model. We are in parallel building this new business model, which over time will replace the existing one. How do you identify customers that might be interested in that? How does that conversation even go? Well, that is very easy. Um, you, You travel the country and you speak to different farmers. So, for example, I made fantastic experiences with French dairy farmers. They have a very high level of education. They earn their money in dairy and not in field operations. So they have been incredibly open to our new outcome-based service models. Okay. And when people are reluctant, what are the reasons they are reluctant? Well, I could speak about why my father is reluctant. My father is reluctant because he's in farming for, for over 40 years, but he's in farming really for the, for the sake of farming because he loves driving uh, his machines and he doesn't like really to spend the full day with my mother at home. So in your vision, he would end up spending more time with your mom at home and he's loath to do this in outcome-based, like how does that change their life? For sure, that's not his vision. So um, I believe he's not a real customer for our digital products. So there are customer segments who want really, for good reason, keep going as they are. And they're really, really great at doing so. Let's focus on those who want to embrace and who want to give crop protection and agronomic decisions to someone else. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Toby. Thank you, Stacey. Wonderful. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 